This is an AMI podcast. I would go so far as to say that the community is pissed off um, because not just because of uh, not getting access to the things they need, but to general societal indifference to what the needs of people who are blind and partially sighted actually are. Welcome back to Triple Vision. I'm David Best, and this is part three in a series we're doing on governance. In the previous two episodes, we explored the governance challenges of a large service organization, the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. We discussed the internal perspective with some staff members, and then we discussed the external perspective with a couple of consumers. But Peter, you know, I think we have more questions than answers, so why don't you go ahead and introduce our guests for today, and maybe they can help us sort out some of the confusion. Thanks, David. Sure, always lots of questions. So um, I I listened to something this week about... um, as a scientist, you want good questions. If you know you're, you're always looking for uh, good questions because that's what keeps scientists busy. I, I'm not a scientist, but I can appreciate good questions. So yes, with us today we have Angela Bonfanti and uh, Robert Fenton. A- Angela is COO of uh, CNIB, and Robert is uh, chair of the foundation board. And as you said, David, following. What we've heard specifically from Jane Beaumont and Kevin Burns, as well as last week with Mary Ellen Gabius and uh, Albert Rell, we wanted to dig in a little bit deeper into how all of this works. So what's the relationship between the foundation and VLRC and DeafBlind Services? And what does it mean to blind Canadians in terms of this three-part system that we have now with CNIB. Angela, Robert, how about you just say a few words in terms of introductions and then I'll turn it over to David. Just to put kind of myself into perspective in terms of where I come from, I am a lawyer. I have been for almost 30 years. I have been totally blind since birth. Uh, I've actually led consumer groups before and been members of many others. Uh, and. I'm also in, have been involved with CNIB as a volunteer and uh, as an employee when I was a teenager, when I worked at the Lake Joseph and SCORE programs. Uh, my primary interests uh, as far as uh, blindness work are concerned are, are technology advocacy and just improving the uh, experience that blind Canadians have around uh, their environment so that they can contribute fully as contributing members of society. And I'm Angela Bonfanti. I have the pleasure of working uh, with our national board chair, Bob Fenton. I'm the company's uh, chief operating officer. A little bit about me. I've been with the organization uh, 11 and a half years now, uh, raised by a dad who uh, was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa when I was a very young age uh, and has no light perception, quickly went to no light perception uh, when I was a toddler. So I've been an extended part of the extended CNIB family for more years than I will admit <laughs> these days, and uh, I'm happy to be part of the management team today. As we know, it's gone through uh, some big changes recently, and maybe you could give us a high-level overview of the structure and how they interact, the roles and responsibilities. We wind many years ago, CNIB was one organization that did everything uh, for everyone, um, and uh, 
there was uh, the call to action was very, very uh, generic across the country. Uh, we learned really quickly that we had some some really specific pieces of work that we did, whether it was in fundraising and advocacy and and in client programs. And we learned very quickly that there's a lot of health related work, primary health related work that we did through such things as orientation and mobility lessons, critical post vision loss. Um, uh, programs and services in particular. And so it was uh, a few, several years ago where the board decided that, you know, there's there's probably a better way for us to be working with our clients and our funders to provide a, a much easier triage uh, scenario for people who come through our, our virtual and our physical doors. And so uh, the, this, this trifurcation uh, exercise took place uh, a number of years ago where Vision Loss Rehabilitation Canada was created to, to really be the uh, critical in-time care for people who are uh, new to vision losses, particularly and going through uh, a life adjustment. Uh, likewise, with DeafBlind Community Services, they're there to help on the uh, translation of key communications, crisis communications for DeafBlind, for DeafBlind Canadians. And CNIB was really to complement those critical services by ensuring that once you have a level of orientation and mobility or starting to become comfortable with your diagnosis, that you have an area where you can live, work and play. CNIB's programs include, you know, virtual and in-person yoga programs, financial literacy, peer support, tech training. We have national flagship programs like our Smart Life Centers, Come to Work, Vision Mate, Guide Dogs, Lake Joe, Mobile Hub. So, you know, the, the split was was made to make sure to ensure that we had our, our own our, our own stakeholders really set up well and that we could better service the client uh, by in, in, by creating a more seamless um, client journey, if you will. There's an underlying philosophy that set this up, especially in relation to the split of VLR away from CNIB Foundation, and that is that the fundamental premise should be that people who are blind should receive publicly funded rehab services like anyone else with a disability gets. For example, if you're in an accident and you become a paraplegic, your rehab is totally funded by the healthcare system. And we took the view that uh, the same should happen if you lost your sight for some reason. Or if you're born with sight loss or whatever and you and you, you and your family require services, those services should be available through a government-funded organization. Um, it may be operated as, as a not-for-profit as VLR is right now, but it receives its money primarily from uh, the provincial governments who are responsible for healthcare administration in the country. The other thing to be aware of too on on the foundation side is that the foundation has a very active uh, presence in the area of advocacy. Thank you very much, Robert and um, Angela. That's a, that's a very comprehensive overview and package of all the types of services that CNIB provides. I'm just going to pass along a little feedback from the community with respect to that sort of package of services. Do clients, and I think you've used stakeholders, so stakeholders, clients, whatever word we're going to use there. We've heard that they there's a sort of a situation where there's, because of the separation, they're having to go to two places. They've got to go in one door and come out of, you know, come back out of the sidewalk and go into the other door to get you know, from the VL, from VLRC to foundation to access the services that they need. Can can you comment on that? Is that is that something you've heard? Is that is that something that takes place? I think it's a great question, and and one of the risks that we 
we took knowing going into this into this area. The reality was uh, that before we had the the, the splitting of, of the entities, you know, people were often there were longer wait times, and people were trying to find, regardless of the, if they were in a CNIB location, there was confusion around where. Uh, they could be triaged and how they could they could get help as quickly as possible. Um, also, there was this issue around going to a charity for help that we heard time and time again. That was a very difficult decision for people to make. And if they were coming into a, a program that was preferred to by their medical specialist, by their eye, by their eye care specialist, um, that there would be uh, a referral process that would, in fact, enhance the process and would allow more people to come in through our doors. And that is what we've seen. Um, where we co-locate, we co-locate in most areas. Uh, the only places we don't exist is when vision loss rehab has a space, for example, in an ophthalmologist uh, office or in an eye, in a in a hospital with uh, with an eye care uh, area within the hospital. That is the real that is the right place for vision loss rehab to be in. Um, I will say that with the virtual world, that has become less of a pain point. Um, the referrals happen on time, almost immediately, and with permission. So if somebody comes through Vision Loss Rehab stores and uh, there is a there is a client uh, status that's been made, the one of the first questions they're asked is, you know, we'd like to refer you to CNIB. Are you ready to go to them today? Uh, because it's important that that our clients know that there's there's more than just the intensive rehab that they're going to go through. There's a there's a plethora of programs and a whole community waiting for them as soon as they're in a place where they're you know really getting comfortable with their with their vision loss diagnosis. So you know, are there people that may uh, have to enter one door and you know walk down the street to the next for another appointment? Uh, we try really hard to to stop that happening as much as possible. We will we've called ride shares, taxis, we've driven people ourselves, walked them over, just anything we can do to to remove the anxieties that can come with that. But at the end of the day, from a service quality standpoint, we're hearing that despite that that if that's happening from time to time, um, that for the most part the 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 quality of the service they're receiving is on time, uh, it's accurate and it's meaningful. And part of it, Peter, too, that you run into, especially when you have government-funded programs, is they insist on eligibility being proven before service is provided. And that's because of how the funding models work. And so there may be circumstances, for example, when somebody wants to buy a piece of adaptive equipment where they approach CNIB because that's where they buy it from, but they have to go back to VLR to determine their eligibility to receive the the funding for the equipment to the extent that to the extent that any government funding is provided and you know there's not a lot that CNIB itself can do when the eligibility requirements are being imposed by government itself they still have to be satisfied but what can happen i think and and can be done better and it's one of the things that i'm uh, pushing for quite quite frankly, is better data sharing between the organizations so that uh, delays in terms of determining eligibility status can be minimized or eliminated altogether. Maybe you could help us understand the uh, decision-making process for programs and services that are established. Uh, we do raise funds and awareness to build strong programs that include advocacy. Uh, how we build those programs are through bolted-on uh, rapid feedback tools. We have uh, regular discussions with our community through via surveys, email, telephone, text campaigns, uh, in-person consultations, social media uh, blitzes. It basically, if we have your phone number and your email address and your permission to speak to you, you hear from us a lot, and we are so thankful for all that feedback. 
I think never more than since in the last couple of years where our world was very rudely interrupted, uh, we were not immune to the impacts of, of uh, what happened to the, to the world. Uh, that really was able to open up feedback like never before. Um, the 200 plus virtual programs that we offer every week, those are directly from the community. Those are from you know, those questions around what is it that you need from CNIB today? And that continues to roll out. And I think that, you know, we continue to keep those mechanisms in place to also test the quality of those programs. Are these programs still working? What more do we need to do? What is it that we need to stop doing? Um, and through that, we build curriculum and program life cycles and continue to test those in real time through the various feedback mechanisms that we have. I would say technology has been great for us in being able to gather that feedback just all to create the programs, but also then to validate their worth and to determine their life cycle. And from the board perspective, fundamentally, the board has four roles to set policy, to so oversee the organization and its activities, to hire the CEO, and to set the strategy. So any kind of day-to-day operational decisions are outside of the board's scope. So if a client is unhappy with uh, whether their particular initiative was being taken forward or not, that would be dealt with at the staff level first and would be try to be resolved at that level. But if there's a bigger oversight question, uh, the board may use its oversight power to ask some questions about why that decision is being made. Management needs to be able to manage and to be able to make decisions. And, and this board is very much in the, in the place of allowing management to do that within the scope of their authority. The board does look at service quality. There is very much an appetite to have an ombuds in place to assist clients on their journey, whether it be within the, the foundation or between the various organizations, if they have to navigate between the foundation and VLR, uh, to make that journey easier and to know where they can go to access resources or to whom they should ask questions or et cetera. The other piece that we haven't mentioned yet, and I think it's it's really important too, is the relationship between uh, CNIB and various consumer organizations. And I, I believe as chair of the board that it's it's very important to have good relationships with all of the consumer organizations. That doesn't mean we agree on everything. It means that we could talk and we can candidly discuss things and share perspectives and get input from these groups who represent uh, more than one individual or a small group of individuals at a time. It's important to have input from these groups and to be seen as a partner rather than as a big brother or as a big sister or anything like that. We are partners within the community. We're not here to run the community or dictate to the community or govern the community. We're here to work together. And I want that message to come across because I think it's very important. Yeah, you'll see examples of that. We have community hubs across the country and half the program that we provide there are, are, are actually provided by consumer groups who could use the space. I'm really glad that the two of you are talking about this because this relates to what came up on our last podcast with uh, Mary Ellen and Albert, where they talked about the a, a national conversation. It seemed to be their opinion that a, a national conversation is not taking place yet between CNIB and the consumer groups. Can you comment on that? Is, is there a space, is there room for a national conversation to take place on blindness in Canada? Peter, I'll be as direct as I can on this. Sure. I am happy to hear from any group at any time about the conversations that they want to have with us. Uh, this is 
critically, critically important. There are a number of challenges that our community is facing, whether it be through funding, whether it be through the development of new technology, whether it be as a result of new barriers being created as a result of COVID, whether companies are forgetting all the knowledge they learned during COVID as we return to normalcy and we're being excluded from programs, whatever the case is, there's lots to talk about. And I don't know why we wouldn't have those conversations with anybody and everybody who's interested in doing so. Yeah, so here comes the other difficult question, Robert, uh, which you promised to answer. So the dilemma, and I'm going to call it a dilemma because currently it, it, it appears to be a dilemma that consumer groups are saying, why can we not be physically represented on the national board? Why can we not be elected to the national board to have a say in the services that CNIB is delivering? And I understand that point of view. I also stand, understand the point of view that um, a large organization has the right and ability to appoint who they need on that board, the, the people with the qualifications who are best suited to move the organization forward. So how do we sort of bridge this these two opinions? I, I think there's a few steps I have to take before I answer the question directly. The first is a bit of a legalistic answer. And that is that people are elected to boards as individuals. And that is because they carry uh, liability and responsibilities as board members. So if I'm put on a board as the president, for example, of AEBC, uh, would that attract liability for AEBC for the things that I might do on the CNIB board as well? And we want to avoid all of that by simply saying we're going to appoint people as individuals so that their duties clearly are owed uh, to CNIB as fiduciaries. And those are to act honestly and in good faith and in the best interests of the organization. And those come right out of the Canadian Not-for-Profit Corporations Act. There's nothing we can do about that. But that is not to say that an individual who is a member of a consumer group or even an executive member of a consumer group couldn't apply to be a CNIB board member. They absolutely could. We're actually running a recruiting campaign right now at www.cnib.ca slash board 2023. And we'd be happy to receive applications from members of consumer groups or even executive members who are interested in being on the board. But they have to understand that in that capacity as an individual uh, board member, they may have fiduciary duties to more than one organization, depending on whether they're an executive of the consumer group or not. And if that's the case, they have to find a way to balance those things. The other criteria that's going to go into this is, does the individual have qualifications that the board currently needs? Just being a consumer isn't enough. Uh, there's geography that goes into it. There's a skill set for IT experience, legal experience, or, or advocacy experience, or government relations experience, accounting experience, or uh, philanthropy experience, public relations experience, and you can name any a number of other categories. But you got to bring more to the table than just being blind or partially sighted. And I would say that many in the consumer groups do bring more to the table than just that. Uh, we're also very cognizant of the fact that we want the majority of uh, board members to be blind or partially sighted. 
And there has been a motion or, a, or at least a discussion held at very high levels that the chair of the board will always be blind or partially sighted as well. So the days of having uh, sighted board chairs of the foundation, as far as I'm concerned, are gone. Uh, the last three chairs, including me, have been blind or partially sighted, and I'm hoping that that conti uh, continues uh, indefinitely. Given where we've been, so given the past and the present and future of blindness and blind Canadians and, and sort of where we've all been, myself included, where do you think we're at today? Like, where, where do you think the community is at today? Where, where do you think the, the state of blindness in Canada is today? And, and how is CNIB supporting where we need to go? We just completed one of the most comprehensive uh, consultation processes uh, of our history. Uh, starting in January of last year and ending around June of last year, we spoke to over 12,000 people from the community um, through, through phone, in person, via surveys, and asked just that question, uh, Peter, what mm. is it? What is the future? What's what's, what is it that CNIB can do now? And we heard about, we asked about challenges and we got challenges. What I can tell you from a consistency standpoint is that, you know, something's changed. Uh, because of what's what happened to our world in, in the last couple of years, uh, in many cases, members of our community were the first to be forced into isolation. And in many cases, they were the last to return. And the world changed when you no longer have somebody with a cane or a guide dog or knowing that they're blind, working next to you, in school next to you, on the bus next to you, your attitudes forget them. It's sort of out of sight, out of mind for the, for the, for the average person. And so we've got a lot of work to do to go back uh, and to things weren't great before the pandemic. And I can tell you they're, they're nowhere near where they were before. So um, what the community is, is demanding from us and with, with every right is to do better, to get to the, the to, to address the biggest barrier that, that our community continues to deal with. And that is simply the attitude of others. Um, but we, we, we think that the future is a bit being a bit bolder, uh, being a bit more relentless and unapologetic. Uh, about the the way that our um, community is treated in Canada. I have a, a lot to add to this, actually, because um, I can speak a little bit more candidly as as the chair of the board. Uh, I, I would go so far as to say is that the community is pissed off um, because not just because of uh, not getting access to the things they need, but to general societal indifference to what the needs of people who are blind and partially sighted actually are. Uh, how many times have we been brought into a program or been brought into a consultation when the program is already designed and we're asked to say, how's this going to work for you? And too bad we can't make the changes that you're recommending because we're going to launch next week or next month and we just don't have the time to do it. I can, I can point to the fact that that has happened a number of times in my life. It's probably happened a number of times in many of the lives of our community members. The other thing that I think has, has kind of focused the community in a way is some of the tactics used by Black Lives Matter and some of the other social cause groups that have come and surfaced during the pandemic. And I know that I've learned a lot from these groups in terms of the strategies that they used, what worked and what didn't, on, in terms of how to mobilize our community and how to speak more uh, publicly and frankly about what our concerns are so that uh, they actually will receive an audience rather than just being shunted over to the side. Right now, people who are blind in Canada are an afterthought. We're not thought of 
in terms of employment equity legislation or human rights legislation on the same terms as uh, people of color, uh, women, uh, and other minorities. And even within the disability group, people who are blind have a different status than others do. And I want to change that. I want people who are blind to be perceived as equally contributing members of society and not just members of society. You know, we we need to be at the table. We need to participate. We need to demand our place and to be heard and to be agreed with and even disagreed with in appropriate cases. You know, that's what community discourse is. And, and we need to be part of that process. So last question for me, Robert. Um, as chair of the foundation board, what's your vision? What are you bringing to the job and where do you want to go? Where do you want to take it? Well, I'll tell you, you're going to be seeing a lot about that in the next couple of months as CNIB releases its new strategic plan. I, I can tell you categorically, I have definitely, like all other board members, had my fingers all over this thing. <laughs> and there's really three key areas that we are focusing on. It doesn't mean that we're not doing work in other areas, but we have three key areas of focus. One is the whole piece around attitudes towards blindness that are pervade society right now. And, and, and in many cases, they are either negative or indifferent. And we want to change that. And it is a tough nut to crack. But until we change that, or until we change those attitudes, it's going to be much harder to affect change in other key areas in our lives. The second area that we've tapped into is the issue of transportation and the barriers that exist in the transportation system today. You know, there's parts of this country where the only way you can get between two cities now, if you're blind or partially sighted, is by aircraft, which is expensive and beyond the means of many of our people, uh, which because of the cut in bus and train service. So, you know, these are huge, huge issues that we're going to be taking on and, and trying to remove these barriers. And the last area is with children. And that is the education system is not serving blind and partially sighted and deafblind children very well. There's not enough teachers of the visually impaired. There's not enough access to Braille. There's not enough access to extracurricular activities. There's not enough inclusion strategies in the classroom to allow people, the kids who are blind and partially sighted and deafblind, to participate in the classroom as much as possible. And if you go back and you look at the education or school acts in the various provinces, that is a requirement in their legislation. Well, I thank you guys very much for being with us. Yes, thank you for your frank and, and candid conversation. I really appreciate it. I've, I've learned a lot. The last podcast I talked about, as I said earlier in this podcast, you know, a national conversation occurring and I thought, I said, you know, maybe I'm being idealistic that that could happen, but I'm, I'm really feeling more optimistic that this can happen. So I really appreciate your openness and coming on and talking to us and, and our listeners about everything that you've said today. Happy to do it and happy to come back if you want me. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of Alliant, A-L-L-Y-A-N-T, and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians, A-E-B-C. 
Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio. Jacob Shemansky is the technical producer, and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And finally, thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to Triple Vision with questions or comments, you can email us at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21.